I don't want to buy into your brand, you know, artificiality. I want you to deliver actual essential value to me in my life that enhances who I am and is relevant to me and makes my life easier. I'm David Kepron, and this is Next Level Experience Design. I've often said that a $5 bag from Bloomingdale's and a $5,000 bag from Louis Vuitton do the same thing. They carry stuff. And you'd be pretty much guaranteed that the bottom of each of those bags, you're going to find some loose change, an eyebrow pencil, maybe some folded Kleenexes, a breath mint, or maybe even a breath mint with the wrapper taken off that's stuck uh, in the corner. There'll be keys and a wallet and a number of other personal effects. But in terms of what these bags do of providing meaning and assigning values, they're entirely different. The goods and services that we buy should do the things they're supposed to do. They're supposed to get your teeth whiter, get you from point A to point B, be comfortable and safe in a car. They should make you feel better or stronger or happier or safer, all of those things. But beyond those functional things, the baseline things that products should deliver on, they deliver much more than that. They deliver meaning and context, and they establish values and relationships with a cohort of like-minded consumers. In the end, meaning is ultimately what's driving purchases and brand affiliations. I buy products and services of one brand or another, not just because of what they do, but because of how I feel when I know that I'm connecting to the ideologies of that brand. What brand relationships give me is much deeper. It's something that's foundational and establishes who we are in the greater context of our family, our culture, our nation, and maybe even some cosmological relationship to God. So today I have the extraordinary pleasure of interviewing somebody who really knows about meaning and knows about branding and knows about the deep relationship that we have to the things that we buy. The work of my next guest on today's episode is really focusing on this very idea, meaning and the relationships that people have to brands and what the value of them is in a quickly moving and dynamically shifting consumer buying ecosystem. Dr. Martina Olbertova and her company Meaning.Global help brands and businesses adapt to the shifting cultural context of the 21st century to create meaning, cultural relevance, and real value for people in these rapidly changing times. Martina advises brands and organizations on how to maximize value creation and meaningful growth from the point of view of where the businesses, culture, and society are going today, which I think we can all agree in the context of the COVID pandemic is hard to actually say. And where we're going today is different from the place we were going six months ago, um, before this pandemic had gripped the globe, and it's probably hard to fully envision where we'll end up in the future. She partners with brands and business leaders to restore true meaning and, uh, and deliver real value to people's lives. She's a PhD in social sciences. She's a founder and CEO of Meaning.Global, which provides strategic intelligence and meaningful brands and businesses. She's a meaning expert. She's a cultural strategist, and she's frequently published on Medium and other platforms, as well as the author of The Luxury Report, something that is, I think, 76 plus pages of what luxury means in our current context. And now she's also the creator and host of her own podcast, The Luxury Renaissance Show. I think this is a fasten your seatbelt interview that'll change much of what you think you know about meaning, value, consumerism, and the concepts of luxury. 
David, what an introduction. This uh, is, you this know, is I, do what I, I do what I can over here. <laughs> you really did too much over there because now I don't quite know how to talk about what I do because you literally said exactly what I do already. Yeah, but I, so, but I gave the Reader's Digest version. You're going to be giving the full-on, <laughs> you know, deep dive into what all these things are all about. So let's go back to this idea of what you do, because when I think I saw you uh, speaking at a conference, the Frame, uh, it was a Frame Awards conference, and you were- Yeah, from, in Amsterdam. Right, you yeah. were on the panel with um, Peter Cole of Design Hotels, um, mm -hmm. also- Marcel Wonders. Marcel Wonders. <laughs> He's yeah. someone whose work I actually really, really like a lot. I was fascinated. I mean, you said so many things that I thought, okay, well, I got to get her on the show because she's just talking about things that are near and dear to my heart. Because I really, truly believe this mm -hmm. idea that the $500 or you know, $5 paper bag and the $5,000 Louis Vuitton bag functionally do the same thing. But at a core mm -hmm. level, they actually impart a whole different set of meanings and messages and values and things like that. So let's, let's talk for a second about um, what you do and why you mm -hmm. do it. And what mm -hmm. really led you to this whole idea of luxury and uh, why in the end it ended up being the luxury report? Sure. Okay. So that's quite a long story and a bit like 15 years of evolutionary steps on my part. So let, let me start at the very beginning. So I initially wanted to be a journalist and that's why I went to study media at the university, uh, media studies, which is a part of social sciences, only to, to, to know once I enrolled that I actually wasn't trained to be a journalist to work in the media i was trained to be a media critic to look outside of the media at what is wrong with it so with that sort of uh, professional deformation or academic deformation when i actually got to working in media and in marketing i instead of being able to jump on a bandwagon and do the same things that everybody else was doing i was sort of like innately trained to look at what was not working and, and the gaps and the disconnects and the fragmentation and the friction in the processes uh, to the, you know, great displeasure of everybody who was ever managing me. Uh, so, so I this, actually realized- this period of time must be a total like <laughs> bonanza for you where everything seems to be dysfunctional. Oh. oh, yeah. No, yeah, this is great. This is actually great because now everybody sees what I already saw during these last 15 years where I was like driving people crazy because I was like, this is not working. I don't understand why I should be doing this. But like, what's the why behind it? Like, what's the, where's the essence? Where's the meaning? Why are we doing this like this way? Where's, why, how is it possible that the sales team doesn't know what the marketing team is doing? What's the brand doing? How can I create this communication strategy if I don't understand the brand essence? Where is it all coming from? What's the consumer's want? I don't understand where I stand within the process. And I couldn't really understand, like I, I couldn't make the mental map of understanding my place in the whole chain of the value creation and therefore, you know, making my work meaningful. Um, and then I realized, hey, it's not really my fault of not being able to fit in, but it's not really their fault either. Uh, it's just the mindset behind how we manage organizations, how we manage brands that is fundamentally broken. And that's why nothing that we do really is as effective as it could be, because it's fundamentally disconnected from people and from the world that we live in. Um, so uh, I finally just broke off and I realized, OK, I'm not really going to be any good within the industry, working at yet another agency, trying to do something I already know is not working for me. Uh, so I might as well just really focus on crafting my own proposition and understand how meaning is tied to all of this and why I believe is a core strategic asset for any business and brand to create and why it should really stand at the core of anything that we do. 
because and here's the brilliant twist because people actually they don't value brands they don't they don't value businesses they don't value the consumption they don't even value how others you know like if they're part of the peer group that has the same brands it's not about that it's about the meaning behind it it's about our own personal point of identification with the brand values the symbolism the symbolic value behind them and then how that connects to us to our own beliefs, mindsets, shared values, goals, visions, aspirations within the larger context of culture. Sure. So it's actually three, like three really big points of focus. And I think that what brands really don't understand is that they're not, they're not like brands are not islands. They don't exist in a vacuum, but also equally, it's not only about just focusing strictly on what the consumers want because they don't know what they, it's not even their job to know, it's your job as a business to inspire them, but also within the context of culture in which your business is embedded so, and which is the natural habitat for consumers. So there's, again, so much to unpack there. Steve Jobs, <laughs> Steve Jobs used to say, you know, um, your customers don't know what they want. You have to tell them what they want, mm -hmm. which I'm not sure I always believe. Exactly. I, I think they more and more really do know what they want. But aside mm -hmm. from that, you know, I worked in, for 25 years in the retail design world, you know, designing stores literally for mom and pop shops to large, you know, uh, big boxes uh, to international brands. And, but I never was really working within the luxury category. And, and mm -hmm. even in my recent experience at Marriott, people would say, well, you know, you can design maybe a residence in or a courtyard or a Springfield or something like that, a Spring Hill suites. But when you jump into the luxury category, it really is a different, and I love the idea, it's a different mindset. So what mm -hmm. led you from working across any of the certain verticals within any of these branded, you know, sure, industries sure. to gravitating to the luxury space? I, I saw an excellent opportunity for actually explaining the fundamental value of meaning to two people in business, precisely on the example of luxury. So when you look at luxury and what you said in the intro was uh, was absolutely spot on. You know, the the brown bag that you buy for, I don't know how, how much, maybe you're even I said it $5. Free, it could be more. I don't know. Okay, $5, whatever, let's say. And actually, give, given the, the very same example in another uh, podcast interview with Sean Pillow-Shennessy in, in London uh, this January, uh, when I was talking literally about the same thing, you know, you can buy, you can buy a, a bag, you know, in a corner store for, for 10 quid or for 5 quid versus, you know, you can buy a um, Hermes Birkin bag for you know much more like twenty thousand dollars for instance let's say uh the the functional aspect of that bag absolutely exact same it carries stuff that you need to carry with you throughout the day to function right the the symbolic value much much different uh because luxury brands are all about the excess of symbolic meaning over the actual functional value that is embedded in the product right. and that excess of symbolic uh, value is precisely where that meaning falls. So for, for luxury brands, the importance of meaning is actually sort of like a primary vehicle value. And that's where I saw an excellent opportunity for actually, for finally explaining <laughs> why meaning is so integral to, for any business and brand to create. Because specifically in luxury, this is like essentially they're, they're all of their business. So you come to, uh, you said 15 years, you know, growing and I think thinking about this concept and it eventually leads to the luxury report. What is the luxury report? Can people get it someplace or? 
Okay, so the luxury report is the report that I wrote last uh, summer and published. Uh, you can obviously, yes, you can get it on my website. You can download it there for free. So the reason why I did it for free is because I wanted to disseminate this information and share it, obviously, with the public and with the industry to actually start having this conversation. So my original idea was to really recontextualize what luxury is supposed to be, that it's all about meaning, to really have like a, to stimulate a new kind of conversation within the luxury industry and pinpoint the things that are that are um, not working. So. Uh, I, in, in the report, I am talking about uh, how the, the very sort of core essence or core meaning of luxury is being redefined throughout the world uh, because there are um, like different erosive factors present, you know, being economical on, or social or cultural or, or digital or, you know, technological. And they are eroding the very meaning of luxury as we know it. So if you look at traditional luxury businesses that have had 150 years or 200 years of uh, heritage, you know, if the fundamental meaning of luxury is sort of being eroded or is evolving because people's needs and mindsets and behaviors and desires are suddenly shifting towards a very new space and paradigm, it means that the fundamental value of your brand is becoming destabilized. Sure. So unless you understand the cultural context that drives these shifts, you really don't understand how your business is being impacted and what to do. So that was, that was the reason. I believe 100% this idea of cultural context, or rather, let's say, context in general. Context establishes meaning. And I, the, the kind of joke mm -hmm. I always use is, is I'm an architect, but you know, I, I had to, re, to do extra math in grade five. So the, the world of numbers and me just don't connect <laughs> particularly well. But, and the only way I got through architecture school, um, to use this idea of context, is is that I find a, a Turkish grad student who was able to get me to understand what I was looking at in terms of all the engineering courses, which were completely flying by me by drawing them, modeling them, creating them in sort of three-dimensional forms. And it's so the algorithm made no sense to me, but if I could understand what it made, what, what X changing that X factor did in terms of the outcome of something else, the contextual relationship between those pieces, well, I totally mm -hmm. understood it. So context to mm -hmm. me is so critical because so many things can be bent and reinterpreted through particular contexts. So I think that also means, and I want you to help me explain this, is uh, the context of luxury has changed over time or, or the cultural context within this luxury category has lived, has also changed over time. So how about a little bit of a, so the brief history of luxury um, and, and what you believe has changed over the ages where where we might have begun to see it develop and how it's now transforming and changing in relation to a new cultural context so when i was going back to the report and actually trying to flush out a lot of this understanding around history and the concept of how it emerges um when i looked at it today with, with fresh eyes i sort of realized that it's so rich and packed with such opposite meaning that itself might be the reason why people are so fascinated with the concept of luxury. The word luxury really comes from a mid 14th century word luxuria, which is a Latin term for lust or lasciviousness or excess or, or sinful indulgence. Oh. So you have something that's very, so luxus uh, used to 
connotes you know lust or lasciviousness or something that is sinful and inherently bad it's about vanity you know and and things that you shouldn't associate with sort of like the, the darker part of human psyche which is why obviously the the christian church uh, romans and ancient greeks really warned the society against luxury because they saw this <laughs> this potential obviously if you don't really if you don't keep the the human appetite for you know endless indulgence and like sinful consumption of stuff and the hedonism then then obviously you, you arrive at this idea that well a um human desires uh, are innately insatiable and b if you only do that you literally destabilize the whole society which is not something that <laughs> yeah, you know, Christians or or Greeks or, or Romans really want the church. So the church they were, were very good at trying to control society oh, through all, oh, yeah. all methods. Suppress, su suppress, to suppress, right, suppress. Yeah, right. Yeah, which is which is what the psychoanalysis does, does as, as well. You know, it sort of like sure. looks at this darker kind of part of human psyche and 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 tries. Right. I, anyway, that's the reason why we have consumer society to keep people docile and keep that you know darker part of insatiable human psyche in check so that is obviously you know and that the christian sort of um went directly against this notion and and um advised sort of to reach the higher realms of purity modesty chastity um and so that that's one side of the equation but then also another side is that luxus you know or lux uh is the latin word for light so it's something that's inherently about enlightenment and human transcendence, you know, and the and the purity and spirituality and become more becoming more of who we are. So you have <laughs> essentially in luxury, you have a concept that could be stretched both of these different ways to accommodate the darker part of human psyche as well as the lighter part of human psyche. You essentially have a perfect metaphor for human life you have the light and you have the shadow and it really depends on us which part of it do we want to embrace mm. now uh fast forward to today this is this is where we are headed in terms of you know the reawakening of human psyche and our senses and really connecting back to who we are aside of the the cultural conditioning or society and really coming back to our inner essence and our soul and you know, understanding how to actually put this personal agency to forward to, to do things that cater to us, our own deeper needs, how to really become more self-reliant and self-reliable. And then obviously in that context, we would be looking at brands to elevate our own sense of self and make our lives better, richer, more meaningful. So this is essentially the lighter part of luxury versus the sinful indulgence. So what I'm curious about uh, when you start talking about this inner essence is, is there an inherent, I'm going to say, dichotomy between the light and the dark? Is this always this eternal conflict that we have as humans, you know, about going to the dark side? Is it the Adam and Eve story, picking, you know, the apple and, and mm -hmm. aligning with evil or, you know, good or evil? And mm -hmm. is the is the sort of drive towards uh, acquiring or being within the context of luxury 
part of a way to get away from the dark side, standing in the light rather than being driven by the desire to go to the dark side. I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing. I'm just sort of thinking out loud about that and saying, wow, it seems like there's a dichotomy, right? I think we can all recognize there's good sides, there's good and there's bad in in our personalities. And is if if I am being driven by the sort of church to live eternally in the light, well, maybe I really want to go and do everything I can to get within the context of the luxury world to be able to stand in the light mm-hmm. all the time. And that way mm-hmm. I keep at bay yeah. those internal I, desires. Okay. I, I think that dichotomy and and this is like a completely like impromptu therapeutic almost like intermezzo within the within the interview, which was like totally not planned. But uh, I think that it's not dichotomy, it's actually four things. So within the dichotomy, there's another dichotomy, and this is why it gets so um, dangerous. So you have essentially the light and the dark, but then you also have the illusion and the reality. So the illusion of the light is the dreamy, aspirational world that we buy into, which is what luxury, you know, really... um, sort of strives for. I mean, this is the world that we are essentially um, getting out of a little bit with the COVID mm-hmm. because we are we were in lockdown. We were, you know, lounging in our in our <laughs> homes on a sofa for about three or four months. So not really having that those means to escape that reality that we had to finally face, we realized how illusory and essentially like unreal and fake the world that we try to escape to wear. So this is why we need we were forced essentially to cultivate our own inner light which was what was hiding in the darkness of the real life so you have the the interesting notion is that what we thought was light this aspirational escapism is actually what kept us in the darkness and now we had to venture into the personal darkness to retrieve the the personal light okay so are you with us are you with us on that people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we have four points, basically, which is why this is so tricky. We're going to provide diagrams and uh, rubrics <laughs> for you to figure out this this bundle of string. But it but it is complex. I think when you begin to start to really understand the relationship between the meaning of brand affiliations or the meaning that are that we attribute to those things, it's not so easy as we want, might seem, right? It's uh, and it's full of the cultural issues, but also my own personal psychological, you know, and uh, makeup, my emotional makeup to which I may attribute value to something, but you may not. And I think this is really mm-hmm. interesting because I suspect that whether it's Hermes or LVMH or any of these other, you know, extraordinary luxury brands, everyone sort of comes to them with a little bit of a different sense of what the meaning is based on their own story. Right. So Mm -hmm. luxury Mm -hmm. has over the years, it has grown. Is there anything else in here leading up to the COVID era that was a shift in how we perceive luxury or in sort of the historical development um, and and why it might be changing? So this is this. This was just a little excursion into the past, obviously, the the very sort of beginnings. Obviously, luxury uh, itself was was sort of uh, tied innately to excess and rarity and opulence because innately it's about something that's out of ordinary, right? It's always been really tied to scarcity, which is a very interesting point that now is being highlighted with the COVID because very 
different things are becoming scarce. Obviously, this was something that was already happening even before COVID. This is something that I uh, wrote about in the report last year, uh, that there is this like whole, whole newly emerging paradigm of new luxury because the fundamental value um, of what we see as luxury for us personally in our own lives is shifting based on what is being scarce, what is, what is, what is scarce in our lives. So if you look um, back, into, in, back into the past, obviously excess rarity and opulence was um, considered luxury because the majority of people had very little. Mm -hmm. um, but now, uh, if you look at, if, well, not not really now anymore because we are like coming back to our senses and essentially uh awakening from this mass illusion <laughs> but uh if if let's say last 20 years um we've been absolutely like bombarded with this you know mass messages of abundance and wealth and you know products and services and advertising and marketing uh to the point that our sort of attention uh, has shrunk and we've become really oversaturated at everything that we can buy, you know, acquire materially. So in this context, what is scarce is actually having, you know, a space to clear my thoughts. That's why mindfulness is on the rise and has been on the rise for the last five or 10 years sure, yeah. throughout the Western society. What else is scarce? You know, having a place to think and really come into alignment with our body, mind, and soul. So that's why a lot of people run or do yoga, you know, to clear their heads, you know, um, or, you know, fresh air. If you live somewhere like Shanghai or, or Beijing, you know, clean air is the ultimate luxury. If you live in London or if you live in Tokyo, space is the ultimate luxury. Yeah, sure. So it, 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 it's very, you know, culturally diversified with luxury what what is considered luxury for us but also because we live in in an age where we have essentially become over civilized another part that is luxury is reconnecting with nature mm, and with ourselves sure. and understand that we that we are a part of nature actually that we are nature so that's something that i just started to do lately uh in, in my own sort of personal practice um you know grounding and earthing and reconnecting with nature and it actually really helped me like recalibrate my own you know inner energy this is the whole idea of forest bathing and things like that mm -hmm. which i i totally get that i i want to just interject here that i i often and people get me probably get sick of me hearing hear me say this but you know years ago I, I remember saying to my sons you know listen guys um time and life energy are non-renewable resources you know how do you want to spend yours and mm -hmm. I, I think the ultimate luxury is the lack of time that we have the ultimate uh, or rather the ultimate scarcity is time um, because mm -hmm. we have a very small compartment of it within the context of a larger you know universal sort of passing of time um, my, hopefully my father died at 97. I, I have the good fortune to do the same or later, um, within the context of the 14 billion years of the, you know, uh, the age of the known universe, my little time is actually very, very scarce, but also this mm -hmm. idea of life energy that, you know, I have a limited amount of energy that I can put into the things that I do and around me. And so it seems interesting then that those to me, if we take it into this life energy mindfulness practice those things that are scarce that we now see more value in now because we've had to change our worldview about being mm -hmm. at home and in the context of the pandemic and the likelihood of getting sick if you go out you know and the risks that are associated to that that people nevertheless um waste a lot of time 
and and they, yeah. they put a lot of energy into things that I, my point of view, could say just don't matter. And it seems to me a strange appropriation of both of those most luxurious elements of our mm -hmm. existence mm -hmm. are most mm -hmm. often the things that we are most ill-considered in terms of how much yeah. we want to spend time on them or spend on them. Because, because time actually isn't the ultimate luxury. Authenticity is the ultimate luxury. So if you don't know who you are, and if you're not connected to your own inner essence and don't know how to express who you are authentically to live a fulfilled life from the core of your being, then you don't understand the value of your time. And that, that therefore you will, you know, waste it on things that are not really meaningful and don't bring any value, you know, have, I mean, we are, we are completely getting like into a completely different territory that we wanted to talk about, but this is fun. Um, Slightly well, yeah, but, more and, and you all thought this was going to be about handbags and shoes, right? And and watches and 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 trinkets. Um, what I find really exciting about the conversation, you know, from the first time that I was listening to you speak, is is that it goes to a deeper level. It's not about the stuff, and I think we, you know, in the retail or hospitality, yeah. it's not really about the stuff. It's not really about the hotel or the shoes or the bag. It's about what those things mean. And I think when you start mm -hmm. to talk yeah. about meaning, it's hard not to go into these areas of that's, areas that's of true. philosophy, right? Where you sort of no, that's true, and, and especially when when it's when the the whole underlying tide in culture and society is shifting back to people from from essentially corporations businesses yeah. and, and and brands which is actually what what I, uh, what what COVID really highlighted for us this 180 degree shift almost from people sort of in that escapist notion venturing into these you know dreamy aspirational made-up worlds by 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 brands to sort of um, join them in this collective dreaming about you know, things that are not really essential to our lives, uh, which then wastes the time and wastes the human potential and wastes the authenticity. So we're shifting away from that to actually understanding who we are, what makes us tick, how we want to creatively enhance our own identity, express ourselves and who we are, and use our voice in society. And therefore, brands need to um, follow us, you know, and use our own authentic values to actually themselves become relevant. So this is the, the sort of complete shift in the whole dynamic of consumption that we will see much, much more of. So would you say then that, I mean, over time, if we go back to what this short, brief history of luxury, you know, the chronology, that luxury has gradually lost that original meaning and the way we're perceiving luxury to be is now shifted and is, is well, I know you say luxury is all about meaning and value yeah, yeah. now. Um, but how how has luxury shifted and lost its meaning over time? Um, so there there actually is like a little interjection in the in the whole sort of like this historical trajectory. So I was talking about the very very past, right? You know, the Greeks and the Romans, and then the 14th century, obviously around the the, the concept of luxuria, the excess and opulence, and obviously aristocracy and royalty were the ones who had the you know the wealth and the means to to sort of indulge in that excessive you know material wealth uh, the rest of the people not so much so this is where this is where that you know collective envy sort of took place um now let's look at what happened around let's say 1980s 1990 so 19 1980s is an interesting turn in 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 time and in the trajectory of luxury because 
this is where the whole deregulation of economy happened, right? Like we saw a lot of credit being pushed into the society. So uh, people had much more uh, access suddenly to disposable wealth. And therefore, they, they were looking for things to purchase, you know. And 1990, the, the late 1980s and uh, early 1990s is where the world saw the, the sort of rise of the, the early uh, luxury conglomerates and obviously the mass consolidation of the luxury industry, where previously luxury was really associated with family-run businesses that, you know, o- over generations had, um, you know, this like, very big experience in, in in craftsmanship and like doing things properly that are cared for and are handmade and they are made for some kind of like a longevity, long-term value mm. and you knew how to take care of them and obviously they weren't disposable. Now with the excess of credit in the society, two things happened. Uh, things all of a sudden became disposable because there was a lot more democratization of obviously democratized access to luxury. Um, and another thing is that people suddenly were using a luxury uh, object as social symbols or cultural symbols to sort of signal to each other, you know, how sort of how much money do I make or, you know, what's my status? So luxury all of a sudden became uh, very much uh, tied to um, tied to um, status signaling, which it wasn't really about that there was never supposed it was never supposed to be about status signaling to other people to sort of gain social mobility and affirm my sort of, my sort of social role of status in society in the eyes of other people this is a very surface level superficial way of looking at luxury as a sort of functional vehicle to gain more in a society mm-hmm. but that you know it, it and then therefore it was with this like overemphasis of the superficial value that is all about the symbolic. <laughs> Interestingly, the symbolic became the functional <laughs> because it's the, I'm using the, the symbolic, the symbolism as a function to sort of gain competitive advantage in society, right. which is quite almost like a warped way of looking at luxury. But where is that functional value? Where is the essence? Where is that, you know, how is it embedded in the lived cultural experience of who I am and what's my sense of place? and the continuum of time and the longevity and how do I properly take care of the products. So we literally took luxury away from this value culture and lift sort of cultural experience, luxury as a, as a mindset um, and as a lifestyle and completely like stripped it away, like took it out and decontextualized it from all this embedded cultural meaning that it was, that it, that, that it was a part of luxury for many centuries. And suddenly it became decontextualized and that's why it became like a token of what I mean in society as a person, which by definition is very short-lived and meaningless. So I attribute self-value to those things, or let me rephrase that. I attribute value to those things that enhance my sense of self and and my, my sense of where I stand in the cultural hierarchy, if you want to call it that, between the haves and the have-nots. And to have um, is, mm-hmm. is, a, is a reflection of who I am. I, I imagine it also has a sense of, it's a sense of empowerment, is a sense of agency that I, I'm able to wear the logoed thing that, that signals to others where I yeah. stand in society, right? 
But the, the, the catch here, again, is that that is the illusion Correct. that I it's not understood. real. Because if your sense of self becomes completely externalized, you if you shut the door at the end of the day and, you know, put your luxury gown, you know, <laughs> back into the closet, you're no one. And you're left with yourself and you have to face yourself and you don't want to do it. So you have to escape in that illusory world again. And you're literally living in that, you know, dream or mirage. Right. That is not real. And this, of course, well, another subject for another day. But of course, the challenge I think we face now with the the other rated sense of self when we turn to the internet and social media networks or social media uh, to to be able to validate the things that I am projecting outwards as stories about my life um, that are mm -hmm. good or not good, and inherently, therefore, I am good or not good, or valuable or not valuable, based on how much people are reflecting back to me. The I'm using the air quotes here, the value of what it is I'm producing. Meaning if I'm getting likes and people are giving me thumbs up, I'm okay. And I think this is the sad part of, of what we see now in the world of social media that we attribute self-worth to that, mm. that it's a reflected sense of self, right? That people are mm -hmm. giving us back the messaging saying, oh yes, that you're so pretty, you're so cute, you're so whatever. Um, and people are doing things and it's in so inherently dangerous because we're we're leaving our self worth up to the judgment of others. Yeah. To, right? to the world to decide. Right. Yeah. And people are mean and there's, there's no accountability. So which is which like is why true. Would they not not say something that's yeah, it's very dangerous. And especially for kids who are growing up now, teenagers. Yeah. Um, I couldn't imagine growing up in a world where the digital platform is actually the primarily primary lived experience because that's that's, I think, what was, was largely happening, yeah. you know, that you live in the digital and then the, the actually physical world around you is almost like secondary. True. And and now, of course, it's even more difficult. When I was a kid, you know, uh, I know this is yet another rabbit hole. When I was a kid, I had my group of friends. And if I did something stupid, my friends would set me straight. Now, mm -hmm. or if I, I said something or behaved a certain way that was appropriate, inappropriate, whatever, my friends, my close friends, whom I knew well because we hung out all the time together, they would be my barometer of appropriate behavior uh, or appropriate val, you know, val my validation came from that very small close-knit group and my family. Mm -hmm. Now we search outside of that close-knit group to a group of people who we've never had contact with, who we only know by the icon they have in the corner of their Facebook page or their Instagram page or whatever it is. And we seek and, and uh, attribute weight to the comments that come from those people who we, we don't know at all. And who knows where the, who they are? So I think it's a very different and very difficult uh, place to be in. For I, I, I think you're right, uh, a young you know a teenager or or you know tween growing up and connected to that world is it's pretty dangerous. Let's go back to this idea for a second. Of we're now in the 80s, we're coming into the 90s, and we're changing as we project forward. You mm -hmm. know what, what's happened in let's say the last 20 years. You know, the, from the 80s, 90s, you know, now we're in the 2020s. So what's in that period of time, has there been any continuous change in the sort of perception of luxury and what it means? Hmm. I think that uh, the world is increasingly becoming tired with this globalized narrative that is essentially hollow and, you know, doesn't really resonate with people, with 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 who we are, how we consume, how we buy things, why we buy things. They're, they're, and that that's coming back to the original point, that's why I um, started my own consultancy, because I saw that these two worlds, the, the corporate world of you know brand stories and the actual world of people and our own authentic lived cultural experience are, are sort of coming apart more and more 
year by year. And the divide, which is the, the I, I call it the meaning gap of the symbolic gap between the, the relevance of what actually brands produce and how what resonates with us is is where the value is essentially lost. Well, let, let me let me suggest this. You you talked about this idea that there are these shifting consumer paradigms, right? Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to say that when I started designing retail stores and and one of my first clients who I did a lot of work for was Ralph Lauren. And when we designed mm -hmm. uh, stores for him, vendor shops within department stores, and you could go into vendor shops or department stores in the early 2000s, and it was full of logos. I mean, everywhere you looked, there was a Tommy Hilfiger and a Ralph Lauren and a Kenneth Cole, and, and all these different brands were logoed everywhere. So the logo, and everyone was wearing them. You know, I'm wearing Ralph, therefore, you know, I assign myself or I buy wearing this, I have a certain sense of value. But you're saying mm -hmm. that there's a shift um, there, there's a number of shifts here. One is a shift mm -hmm. from aspiration to identity. Mm -hmm. Another one would be from ownership to usership and mm -hmm. from buying to being. So could you, let's unpack those things a little bit, those shifts that we're seeing in those paradigms and, and what it means uh, for luxury in the context of, of our current culture. Sure. And I think that logs, logs, uh, logs back to, um, what you were just talking about with Ralph Lauren, that this, this sort of like logomania, the the 90s, and then definitely um, around the rise of millennium, we could see the absolute obsession with logos everywhere. Now the language is gradually moving more towards subtlety, minimalism, understated. The fact that only really selected few know that the brand is the brand. <laughs> is the essential value of that luxury brand because only the people who are in the same sort of circles mm -hmm. will know by you know the craftsmanship or the stitching or the, the the material or the shape the design that you are carrying something so it's almost like a bespoke language for selected few but that like language of luxury sort of cascades down so th this is why this is an interesting this is another interesting actually tension within luxury is that it used to mean this one thing, right? Either it was success, now it's moving more towards something else, but also it's sort of like stretching out from the middle to, to, to both sides at the same time. So it's becoming like much more diversified. Hmm. So we are moving more towards like high net worth individuals, ultra high net worth individuals, obviously the ultra, ultra rich. And the more you're going that direction, the more subtle, bespoke, limited, um, the, the 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 language gets and the sort of offering gets um almost invisible right and then you have the other direction which is more towards the mass market the mastiche so these are for instance the uh, louis vuitton keychains so the fact that everybody is now doing white trainers <laughs> because the the white trainers were like the this obsession of the street style so now luxury brands started doing them and you cannot literally tell a difference between, you know, the, the products almost is the same exact product just branded by a different brand. Mm. So this is this is how the the category is sort of stretching from from the middle to to both sides at the same time. And then obviously you have the cultural diversification, which is a completely different topic. Back to the um, as you were as you were talking about the shifts. Uh, so the aspiration moving from aspiration more towards identity. That's essentially what I was talking about with that. 180 degree shift that's sort of changing the whole dynamic of consumption, not just within luxury, 
but as like as a model of consumption what actually makes us want to spend money what what what, what drives us yeah we are seeing this shift that a bit away from you know buying into these aspirational worlds by brands and mortars actually brands shifting their focus to creatively enhance our own identity as we are coming back mm. to who we are authenticity is on the rise so it's more about our own identity rather than affirming the brand's identity and that's why essentially you see that the logos are getting smaller and the the language is moving more towards minimalism or subtlety or essentialism and really delivering and creating value in people's lives rather than us you know, buying into a brand world. So let's pause for a second there because I, my, mm -hmm. I have a fascination with this idea that if it is true then that brands are shifting, and I think they are shifting to this idea that the brand really is um, promoting me as an individual, right? So this idea from ownership that I own that branded product to this idea that it's about identity and, and how that uh, connection is, is, is about my identity. How do brands maintain this sense of who they are if what they're con seemingly continuing to do is promote the individual, not the actual brand? I'm, I'm not sure I made that question clear, but if if mm -hmm. if it's all about me and and the mm -hmm. brand helps me know or, or be more me, whatever that means, um, mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a brand in the context where the brand has really shifted the focus away from itself to the the manufacturer of the individual identity, the shopper's identity? Oh yeah, does oh, that yeah. make sense? I, Is that I know absolutely. It it does make sense, and I think that for for many luxury brands today, that is exactly the, the the question that is at the core of their strategy. Uh, but so there are two ways uh, to to respond to this. Obviously, the the right way of responding to it, and then what majority of brands are doing, which is which is the wrong strategy, I would say. Um, so you cannot really only embrace the the consumer identity and go towards this complete you know, individualization and make it all about the make it all about the customer and the consumer trends and what Gen Z wants or what millennials want, because then essentially you become meaningless and, you know, uninteresting because that that is the sea of white trainers. You know, that is <laughs> everybody having the same backpack, everybody having the same, you know, jacket, everybody doing, I don't know, black jeans with holes in them, whether it's... I, I, but with Saint Givenchy, or 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 other other brands, is is just you cannot all be doing, you know, very similar product because then by definition the strength of the brand, you know, is going to be diluted. So sure. that's I would say that's the wrong way to go about embracing the individual identity. The right way, I think, which which I don't see that many brands doing. Although LVMH has a couple of brands that are very good at this. For instance, Fenty the collaboration with Rihanna, creating her own brand. Mm -hmm. That is all about personal empowerment. But the difference here is that for her, it stems from her authentic persona. So if you are able to create, like for instance, as a celebrity, to amass a large cultural following that really mirrors your own values and you are able to embody those values authentically as as, as a personal brand, you know, Rihanna, or, or then even... Uh, as a as a traditional luxury brand, really understand what's the core of your brand essence, 
and how does it relate to people's needs, beliefs, values, mindset, behaviors in the now, you know, like translate that brand essence, the heritage of it from 150 or 200 years ago to what is essential and valuable and relevant to people today, then you can still use that brand identity to enhance the identity of your of your consumers, but without understanding that link again between the brand identity, the consumer identity, and then the large cultural context within which both of you are embedded, you are not going to be successful. So that, that's how we drive that everybody doing the same stuff. So if Rihanna is a cultural icon, current you know, time context, and to the extent that her personality attributes are authentic and easily mm-hmm. identifiable as a series of things that she believes in about herself, um, then those are clearly, I'm going to use the word marketable to uh, a luxury category within uh, whatever series of product categories um, and, and attributes to which the customer can still aspire or relate to or align with, and therefore they can be connected to the Fendi brand through the Rihanna product and therefore sort of still um, still have that connection to the luxury luxury experience or products or meaning through the Rihanna subset within the Fendi category of products that, that they have, if that makes sense, right? I mean, if she's, so if she's, if she's a current icon, I believe it, um, and she's, and they present her as being authentic in the things she believes in, those attributes of her personality, then they become those identifiers, right? To which I can assign now um, mm-hmm. a, a sense of, of uh, identity. So I acquire those identi- those attributes of her personal identity by my alignment with the purchase of her products. If I don't believe in her, I'm not gonna buy her stuff. But if I think and I like what she's about, then I'm more likely to align with and purchase or commit to a relationship with that brand. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. It, it, it does make sense, but also, so this, I would say that's this the A, but also there's B, which is I might really n- not follow Rihanna as a cultural icon or listen to her music, but because she embodies the same exact values uh-huh. and aspirations that I have, as another part of that same generation with that same exact lived experience. Therefore, I have the same aspiration. So she speaks to me authentically. And therefore, whatever she creates as a product, new line of clothing or, or, or shoes or anything is going to be relevant because it fits directly into what I want to portray as myself sure. to the world. So that, that is what culturally relevance is about. And that's how people can brands can can embody that authentically. But this then this really is this idea that you're going from buying to being, right? This the, mm-hmm. you're shifting from the acquisition of the thing to to what it means to be um, to, the, to the lifestyle and to yeah. the lived experience. So it's not about amassing large amount of material objects and have these you know home collections of look at how pretty it looks in a closet. It's not about that. It's that, you know, our lives shouldn't be galleries of, of, of things that you can buy in the store. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't create our home decor around the fact that it looks like the store. Like that's not, that's not what we should be doing. But um, 
we should be using those products to fit to our own lifestyle um, and elevate those moments around our own, you know, essential needs or how we go about, you know, what is important to you in your daily life. And, you know, somebody is really passionate about cooking, you know, so they might like to really invest into nice set of, you know, pads and you know, pens and pots, whatever, I don't know, knives or um, homeware, or they'd like to host parties. So for them, it would be about having nice, you know, a set of tableware and nice cutlery and nice, you know, set of plates or, you know, like different people value different things. Sure. So that's why, you know, the, the idea of luxury and how it fits to our lives needs to diversify around those essential needs as well. So, you know, when we talk about this idea that we're, we're seeing consumer paradigms shifting from this idea of aspiration to identity, ownership, to usership, buying to being, my question is, is that, is this always seen through this Western, uh, Western sort of first world view, you know, our, our set of what seem to be sometimes rose-colored glasses. I mean, do these ideas apply equally to third world countries or developing countries or those that are not part of what we'd see as a, a white westernized sort of cultural mindset? Sure. Um, I think you're right in, 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 that, in that question that it is, uh, that it pertains mostly to uh, sort of first world sort of westernized society, simply from the reason that the Western society is sort of the most over-civilized society that there is. And therefore, the, the society that is most cut off from the human essence and from nature. So the more you, you know, climb up the ladder of, you know, civilization and urban life and constant, you know, economic progress and, um, you know, living to work rather than working to live, uh, and endless technological progress and fascination with digital media and literally placing our sole focus on everything but ourselves and nature and the natural world that we are a part of, you are running the society to the point of exhaustion because it's not sustainable. Never in the history of human life were they so underserved, undersaturated, and absolutely essential for us to pay our attention to um to to taking care of these absolutely essential part of ourselves so that again is the whole point of connecting back to ourselves who we are our inner essence connecting back to nature understanding how to be in alignment with our mind body and soul that we are not you know, physical beings in a physical world that we do have emotional body, that we do have some kind of a spiritual transcendental, you know, other realm to our being, uh, that we are not here to simply just con constantly and endlessly collect and consume stuff, that we should be consuming things that are good for us. And therefore, we are largely at odds with humanity and with nature. I remember seeing years ago this an article that uh, talked about this idea that if you looked at the Western civilized countries, maybe that's not even the right word, but um, mm -hmm. that despite having, by comparison, extraordinary wealth and the ability and access to all kinds of things, there was actually a remarkable decrease in their level of happiness or mm -hmm, satisfaction mm -hmm. with life, despite having all these things. And so I guess it does sort of ask the question that there are those who 
I'm going to say only from my particular point of view, are less fortunate, meaning they don't have the access to things like that I take for granted, clean running water, for example, mm -hmm. you know, where water every day is a challenge where you have to walk five miles to get a, you know, water to bring it back to your village. But yet in many cases, a lot of the research would suggest that those people who have less are actually happy with what they have. And they're more connected to those things that we might say we've left behind as being important to us you know like you're saying the connection to the planet the connection to mm -hmm. this the family you know unit those kinds of things we had a friend who came to visit us at our house uh, who grew up in a village in kenya and um, as she stood in our backyard she was facetiming her mother and uh her mother she said mom you know look at all of this land i i have the very good fortune to live in maryland on almost three acres of property which is beautiful um mm -hmm. And the very first question her mother asked her was, what are they growing? And we sort of thought, isn't that a fascinating question? And it completely made me look at this piece of property that I own and I'm mm -hmm. not growing anything. And it was very fascinating that, you know, with all of that, what are they doing with it? And uh, yeah. the answer was actually slightly embarrassing, which was we're, we're not doing much with it than just looking at it. It was just a shift, I think. It was a real eye-opener to consider that. Yeah, I have a lens versus I, I actually use a lens to create some kind of value Something, for me. Yeah, for, right. So I want to go back to this idea of uh, an emerging cohort of guests, the Gen Z guests. I look at them a lot. I watch my sons and what they're doing and find it fascinating in terms of their connection to the world and to brands and relationships and such uh, through social media. And there was a recent McKinsey article that was called Meet Gen Z, Shaping the Future of Shopping. And, and in there, they, they wrote, and I quote, uh, they're looking beyond tangible products and looking to try to understand what makes a company tick. What's its mission and what's its purpose? And what is it actually trying to build for us as a society? How does this vision that you have created in terms of the concept of luxury based on meaning and purpose align with this cohort's point of view? If they believe that they're looking towards brands for more than just the stuff, seems mm -hmm. like the way you're thinking about meaning and value and luxury is being all connected, it's perfectly aligned with this group. No, it is perfectly aligned, but it's not perfectly aligned with this group. It's perfectly aligned with this time that we find ourselves in. So that that's that. <laughs> so I have like a slight problem with that question. Not to offend you, but that, I that's love it. Like, offend me. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I'm, I'm, that's what I'm good at offending people. The yes, you're absolutely right. That is in alignment, but that's that's not why it's in alignment. You know, there, there actually is nothing like Gen Z. There are no millennials. There are no, you know, generational cohorts or, or things that we can label. Like the whole idea that that sort of marketing created this market segmentation to look at basically first, you know, social demographics and life cycles and like the need base. A way of segmenting people all the way to generational labels. None of that exists. That's again like this illusion that I can segment people and put them into boxes and then assign them, you know, values, behaviors, mindsets. So that it's easier for me as a marketeer to 
to then, you know, cater to them and market to them. And but that's not understanding this very reductionist way of understanding humanity. So what um, what, as you said, the Gen Z, the, the mm-hmm. young people, you know, 18, 20 year olds are essentially doing is is standing up to the corporations and really questioning the fundamental foundation on which they were built and asking the questions, are you actually in alignment between what you say and what you do? Where is that integrity? Are those values that you're expressing as a business authentic to or your own brand values and to what people want from you as a business? Where is that value? What does it do for me? I don't want to buy into your brand you know, artificiality. I want you to deliver actual essential value to me in my life that enhances who I am and is relevant to me and makes my life easier. So that is what is that yes. And with that in mind, but it's not only Gen Z, the young people, it's just the the simple it's it's the sort of like energy of the now or the t- the time that we find ourselves now. We are absolutely at the the very sort of top of that S curve of you know uh, let's say the jump between the industrial society towards um, towards information society, digital society, and the knowledge based economy. So with with that in mind, we are. We essentially need to make that transition much, much smoother. And the transition between those two is that unveiling the artificiality, unveiling the illusion, understanding that without integrity, meaning, purpose, and essential value embedded at the heart of business, those businesses are absolutely irrelevant. And what they're saying are a bunch of lies, and they have nothing to do with our with our, our lives. So what I find interesting about this, and I think you're right, um, it's going to take me a moment to think about dissolving the construct that I have about generational cohorts, right? Boomers, Xers, millennials, Gen Z. I mean, it's important to you, right? It's important to you as well. It's important to you that businesses say what they mean and actually deliver. So it's not about Gen Z. It's like, like honesty and integrity and meaning and purpose and value is equally important to all of us. It's just that different generations live through different paradigms, different different sort of evolutionary states within the marketplace. And therefore they were able to digest maybe more of that and make it make it, you know, seem as that's the way the world is. That's the normal. But the, the, what the young people are doing, they're challenging that notion and saying, hey, wake up. That is not normal. And we all should be questioning that. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say, right? Which is that I don't Sorry. think, no, no, <laughs> but I think that I'm at the very end of the boomer. I'm sort of right between boomer and Gen, Gen X or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I don't think a boomer liked being lied to by the government or a brand or company any more than I would like, any more than my 18-year-old son would like. So I think that sense of authenticity about transparency and communication, those things, those are, I think you're completely right about that. That is the same across all of these age groups. But I think what has changed now is cultural norms, I'm going to say North American cultural norms, may have been in the past that you didn't question it and it was the few people who might step out of the out of the sort of very controlled sort of socio-cultural norms of speaking out right we now have a very different socio-cultural context which which 
promotes the idea of people speaking out and the the BS culture, you know, I call BS or the call out culture. We're saying our willingness to say that's a load of crap that you're giving mm -hmm. me and say it out loud, which I, I suspect may not have been the case, you know, 30 or 40 years ago or 50 years ago, um, in, in to the extent that it maybe it is today with, with the, a younger generation of shoppers or consumers. Yeah. No, absolutely. Because the belief system has, has shifted and it has fundamentally changed because like at the very beginning of consumer society, consumer culture, you know, people were sort of in awe it, with this idea that they can amass, you know, shiny products and have, you know, this do this for them and have the you know, microwave and this, you know, new other robot or whatever, the vacuum cleaner, I don't know. And it all sort of perfectly take, takes care of your home. Um, so it makes your life much easier. But somewhere, you know, between the <laughs> 1950s and now, it all went terribly wrong because it, it's sort of like that consumption took over our lives to the point that that you know that sorry to say it again illusion has become the reality and and now we have a very big problem with differentiating between what is fake and what is real right. so but the young culture doesn't have that problem because they haven't been conditioned in that way right there is a because they're young yeah. right so for them, it's much easier to actually see it. So it's not that they are necessarily the brave ones. I mean, they have much less to lose. So like, it's easier to be brave if you have if you have no mortgage and no family. Um, but uh, but also they see it because they their their point of focus hasn't been blurred yet. So it seems to me that um, there's increasingly this idea of smaller niche brands becoming more prevalent. Uh, I think it's happening in the boutique hotel industry. I think it's happening um, on the internet and actually in real stores. Um, and they all of them have seemingly smaller footprints and a really clearly articulated message about what they stand for. It also seems to me that this resonates pretty closely with this uh, emerging cohort of customers. You know, my sons who I always talk about, or at least their their group of of consumers. Um, what are your thoughts about the idea that things are becoming increasingly more bespoke or smaller in footprint, but more clearly articulated and tightly parsed sort of segmented messages in the way brands and or brand experiences are developing? Hmm. I think it's, it's, it's all about that shift towards personal relevance and identity. So there's actually two, two parts to that question. One is the, is the direct actually continuation that feeds directly into that uh, previous question you asked me about um, Gen Z and why they are, you know, being suddenly outspoken about challenging businesses around uh, brand purpose and saying the truth and what's the role of authenticity. So that is precisely that. If you are a smaller brand with niche value that only caters to specific uh, target audience, there's a much higher likelihood that what you are saying and doing is in alignment. So that you know you're actually producing some kind of authentic value that is ethically sourced. There's a sustainability at the core of the business, and it's relevant to me as a customer because if it's not produced for a sort of like a globalized, homogenous mass of people, uh, but you know just for like a selected group of people who have the same values, mindsets, behaviors there's a much bigger likelihood that I can actually identify with that brand and it's going to be relevant to me because it speaks directly to who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think that there's, and this may be parsing, you know, words here, but do you think that there's a difference between resonance and relevance or is it really just two different sides of the same coin? Yeah, I, I, I use think, relevance as, as yeah, um, I, and I don't often use resonance, but I, I actually quite like the idea that it is mm -hmm. resonant. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Is there a difference? I think those? That, yeah, no, there, there is a big difference. And ideally, both should be present. But the industry largely just talks about relevance because, again, it's sort of like brands are still obsessed with themselves rather than how they impact people and their own needs and behaviors. Um, so I think that this like preoccupation with relevance is, is important. I mean, basically to be relevant as a brand, so to, to have what you say be in direct um, alignment with your own essence and identity, as well as cultural relevance, which is again like the expression of the brand and its values be, being in direct alignment with what is the ongoing, you know, cultural trends or the cultural shifts. Right. And how does it all tie together? So that is the relevance. That is what the brand creates. Now, the impact of that brand relevance on the customer is the resonance. So that is the resonance part should be what brands are actually almost monomaniacally mono just focused on is how do I engage people in authentic and meaningful ways and resonate with them? So it's almost, again, that shift in perception from brands to people. We're, we're essentially that this whole, I think it, even this whole conversation uh, has this underlining sort of dynamic of going back to humanity. Mm. This, is, this is the shift that we can see throughout, throughout basically everything that we just talked about. I like that idea of energy resonance does, um, and I'll take a moment outside of this conversation to think about <laughs> shifting my point of view from, cause I have really only talked about this idea of relevancy. You know, what will, how do you remain relevant, you know, in the context of an emerging uh, mm. cohort of, of consumers. Um, but I like that idea of resonance and that there's something like, you know, it's kind of like harmonic resonance, right? When you, when someone's singing out of tune, you know it and it doesn't feel mm -hmm. good, right? There's mm -hmm. something about it. There's a body sense there, which I think is truly, part of where we want to go with connecting brands to consumers or experiences is that idea that we are ultimately affecting the sense of who they are. We all know when we feel good in a place and when we don't feel good in a place, or when we hear music that doesn't, you know, fit in our body. My son who's a musician says, yeah, the music doesn't fit in my body. And, and I think I'm becoming better at understanding what that means. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which actually can I, can I just inter intersect sure, there? Yeah. I, so, so you liked that resonance part of that question. What I just liked about what you said is that energy part of that resonance mm. point, uh, because it is all about that shift in energy. Everything is energy. Uh, we are energy, and therefore, you know, we really know full well almost instantly if something resonates with us or doesn't resonate mm -hmm. with us. Mm -hmm. But you could also say that this shift from relevance to resonance is this underlying shift from fear to love right from this preoccupation with oh my god what do i need to do how do i need to create relevance to future prove who i am so that i don't alienate people versus love resonance how do i actually unpack everything that i am about as a brand as a business so that i can engage with people and open them up so that they feel better around me right and that is a completely different conversation and it actually links back to an article that i wrote earlier this year um about i called it 
the economy of fear or meaning. Um, just like a like a set of like a set of questions about what is the consequence of the economy that we've built around you know alleviating pain points and low self-esteem and sort of you know overcompensating for things that we are not really happy about as human beings and sort of leaving that paradigm and shifting our focus as brands and businesses uh, towards creating an economy of meaning, which has some fundamental and essential, essential value at the core, which caters to people naturally because it respects who they are. So this is this also could be the parallel between relevance and resonance. In a previous episode of this, uh, we were speaking with Ari Peralta, um, who has a company called Aragami, and and you know he reiterated the same thing that you just said. You know, in the end, we're talking about people, and somehow, mm -hmm. you know, it seems to me that um, some brands or some experiences forgot that we're talking about people, and that if you can get. If you, and that is, we haven't talked about empathy, you know, often use word more and more and more these days, but this idea of empathic extension, you know, our ability or seemingly sometimes inability to sort of extend ourselves in an empathic connection to people, which I think is about energy too. We're going to leave that for a, another conversation. Yeah, we, do need to, we need to do like a whole series yeah. of this because man, <laughs> if you talk about spirituality and energetic alignment, that's what I've been doing for the last six months. So this is another episode right there. Stay tuned, people. We'll come back to the energy alignment <laughs> discussion in an upcoming episode. Um, <laughs> let's talk about this idea just for a moment uh, before uh, we, we, we come to talking about the luxury Renaissance show, which I think is really intriguing. Uh, this idea, the mm -hmm. relationship that, that really is built between this perception of luxury, meaning, and value. And, and this same way that we're talking about rena uh, resonance and relevance, I think there's also mm -hmm. a distinction to be made between symbolic value and functional value. So let's yeah, uh, yeah. try to unpack that idea, meaning and value yeah, and, and Absolutely. And that would be that would be actually the point that we would be going back to that sort of meritocracy, aristocracy divide in luxury in terms of perception of where the value is at the at the beginning of 1980s. So when the symbolic actually became the functional phrase and people started using that symbolic value of, of luxury brands as sort of social markers of their own value and self-worth in society, we sort of completely neglected the idea that Luxury, originally, uh, if you look at the early beginnings of Hermès or, or Louis Vuitton, it was tied to that functional value. <laughs> because if you look at, for instance, the, or the, the early beginnings of, of Louis Vuitton, uh, the, the innovation or the luxury embedded in the product was that uh, Louis Vuitton created a flat surface suitcases because they that that way they were able to stack them onto each other to uh, create less volume and and save up space on let's say um, long distance travel. So it was that that luxuriousness of the product was in the functional aspect of the product. Correct. Right. Because before all, all all suitcases were sort of curved at the top, so they would if you will try to stack them onto each other, they would sort of fall off, right? And then as a sort of added benefit, because it was his invention, uh, he wrapped it up in a nice canvas with. Um, I mean, it, I, I don't think it was a monogram at that time. It was a different a different sort of canvas, but you could immediately see that it's a Louis Vuitton suitcase. 
So the, the branding was a point of identification, again, as an added benefit for the customer to be able to recognize their own suitcase in a pile of other black suitcases that were imprinted. So for instance, this is, you know, the, the embedded functionality was the actual original luxury of the luxury brands. And then as the, as the sort of investment in the brand grew and the, the product portfolio diversified, and it became essentially all about that, you know, status-seeking opulence symbolism. Then we saw this divide between the symbolic value and the functional value. Mm -hmm. The same with, for instance, Hermes. Actually, that's an interesting story. So if you look at Birkenbach, the original idea of a Birkenbach wasn't to create something that in 2020 is going to basically um, retain more value over time and grow uh, grow in value as an investment much faster than gold and silver which it does by the way it's it's like one of the best investments that you can invest in, in anything in the world at the moment Birkenbeck so it wasn't the original idea the original idea was when uh, Jane Birkin coincidentally met the the chairman of Hermès Jean-Louis Dumas on the on the plane and she was a young mother, so she was sort of like carrying a lot of stuff with her. And once she was, you know, taking the bag out from the from from the carry-on locker, uh, like it opened up and all things were flying, right? And then he he actually uh, sat um, on a seat across of her, and so they struck up a nice conversation around what would you actually need? And she said, well, I actually need a bag that looks nice, but I can also stuff you know, a lot of things into it that I can carry with me throughout the day. So it needs to be practical first. So the function, again, drove the luxury, drove the invention. So they, like, he like sketched the, like a little sketch and he's like, okay, would you like this? And what would, what would it be like? You know, and would, like, would you need more compartments? And like, how would you like to open it? And so it was around that idea and even if you accommodate like baby bottles the thing that you don't really associate with working back today the 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 most expensive working back in the world i think was sold in an auction for five hundred thousand dollars which is an astounding amount of money for a bag coming back to your original point in the intro you know that's way over um, the five dollar uh bloomingdale's paper bag uh <laughs> yeah that's that way over amazing um, but again, so you created something at the very beginning that was of a primary functional value, that functionality was the luxuriousness of the product. And then as the time went on, I think to, because people started buying them and collecting them as an investment, I think that they started uh, creating the Birkenbeck with more material in it to make it like more sturdy and like um, so basically future for the product, make it more durable. And I think at that time, that functional value and the symbolic value sort of divided. So I don't know if you ever held a, a Birkin bag in your hand, if you had a an opportunity to weigh how much it, you know, how much it weighs, but that thing is very heavy. I, I think like alone, just when, when it's there's nothing in it and it's completely empty, it's easy like two or three kilos. Um, so I was, I was actually looking at one a long time ago when I was still into um, this, status symbol seeking game, which I'm not a part of anymore. But I was actually looking at one because I liked the I liked the design and I liked also what it represents it. Um, but the minute that I held it, it was like there's no way that I can carry this 
anywhere because I can, like I, I can barely weigh that that empty. Like imagine putting a laptop in it and then everything that you need throughout the day. Mm. It's like a luggage, so it's it's not very practical. So we need to find a way to really bridge this gap between the functionality and the uh, and the symbolic value, and understand that we need to sort of put the meaning and the the, the essential value and the functionality utility comfort, practicality back into luxury, because this is where it will actually create more value in our life and add more meaning to our life. So the interesting thing you you, you touch on there about the functionalities, and I imagine if you're talking about Louis Vuitton as well, is, is there's a level of craftsmanship to these products, right? Mm -hmm. um, that I suspect is also part of the perception of the functional value of these things is that they're built to last for a long time. And the craftsmanship mm -hmm. is really an integral part to my perception of the value that I get as well. I'm not going to buy my $50 pair of shoes that I know I'm going to wear for the summer and they're going to be done. I might spend $500 on a pair of shoes, but they're going to go a long way. And I, mm -hmm. so that that is to what degree in your mind is craftsmanship part of this relationship? Of, of perceived value you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge part and that actually that is a part that should be much more you know coming sort of to the forefront of the conversation much more highlighted because that longevity durability of the product that is the whole missing piece how to link luxury back to the value culture and take it out of that bag of disposable culture that it somehow you know ended up in, but it was never supposed to be there. So let's talk about the show for a second because I love the name of the show, the Luxury Renaissance Show, uh, which mm -hmm. is there really is you know we think of Renaissance or rebirth. Um, this mm -hmm. the show I think gears itself towards discussion uh, with people who are clearly. Uh, embedded into the luxury world and what it's about and talking about the remaking of the luxury experience right or what it means now so give us a little bit about that and and when where can we go and listen and and uh, who is your next guest and all those kinds of things sure okay so yeah you're absolutely right so the the luxury renaissance show it's not about you know uh understanding luxury and the the, the age of renaissance is the other way around it's to our attempt to create the re-evolution of the conversation and the rebirth of luxury as a concept and what it should mean and what it should stand for. So it's essentially, um, I, have a, I have a partner in crime in the show, so I'm actually a co-host and co-creator. The, the second arm of the show is Angela Tunner, who is, um, she's based in Vancouver in Canada, and she's a publisher and um, editor-in-chief of her own uh, luxury magazine called Eat, Love, Savor. So together, we met about a year ago, year and a half ago, actually on the backs of me um, publishing the luxury report and then her reading it and being absolutely in love with uh, what I wrote. And then she interviewed me for the magazine and we sort of like started talking from there. And uh, we realized that we actually share a very similar view of what is wrong with the luxury industry, how it's lost its meaning, but she is sort of embedded deep into that you know luxury world she like lives it she's just very passionate about it i'm looking at it more from that anthropological or let's say social sciences perspective so we sort of uh, merged the perspectives together with an aim to revive the luxury conversation and really bring that missing piece of knowledge uh, and recontextualize what luxury should stand for and what it should mean to take really the route that we didn't take in the 1980s 
and bring it away from a meritocracy conversation that is really obsessed with status seeking and symbolism and using you know luxury only on the surface level and bring the focus back to that cultural context to value culture to understanding what these luxury pieces mean how they connect to me as a human being to my own mindset and lifestyle and lived experience and how they elevate my you know own life rather than just again you know us running towards brands and trying to amass as much as we can because we mean more that's not true you know we we need to understand who we are because if you don't understand who you are then nothing that you buy is going to mean anything to you because you are the one creating the meaning so if you're not there present in the conversation you can literally amass as much material wealth as you want buy as many luxury breasts as you want and you're not going to you know it's not going to be any more meaningful to you right i think this is the idea that i when i have been able to fill my shelves um i what do i turn to next not more stuff because my shelves don't hold more stuff but the only <laughs> thing to turn to is feeling my heart right and my soul yeah. and i think that's yeah. a, a key a key differentiator between what becomes important and what we then begin to to value the meaning it drives into my life and the perception of it as, as being a luxury so no absolutely yeah. absolutely and that's that's exactly the what we have in mind so we want to bring the insights and the sort of missing piece of the conversation because there's a lot of really interesting you know, conversations on the outskirts, you know, in the sort of fringes, but they're not really, I mean, if you look at the really mainstream conversation about luxury, it's all about future-proofing brands and, you know, fashion and bags. And now, you know, it's also increasingly about hospitality, travel. So they're naturally much more ahead because they're they're already living in that space of wellness, well-being, healing, experience. It's, it's much more about saturating those higher, you know, transcendental, needs mm -hmm. but uh the, the, if you look at the personal luxury conversation it's still very much focused on, on material wealth and and, and 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 like material goods rather than rather than people so um yeah so we we started a show in july so we only just had two episodes uh the first one was about you know what constitutes the true luxury and doing something very similar as we did just now together understanding the whole trajectory of evolution of luxury why did we arrive at this you know crisis of meaning of luxury or, or loss of meaning um and then talking a bit more about you know the future core pillars you know sustainability obviously merging the digital and the physical experience because now that we are in lockdown you know we need to become much more creative in terms of how do we actually sell these um products and experiences when people just will not go to physical stores so what what is the you know what is the possibility there and then we talked about you know anthropology of luxury and desirability uh and then the second guest we had was luca franco uh the the, the founder and ceo of uh luxury frontiers so he is a very frontier actually of embracing these um shifts much more towards self-actualization and healing and well-being in, in luxury travel already. So he creates and develops luxury resorts and uh, immerse, culturally immersive uh, and authentic luxury experiences for, for different like hotel brands around the world. So we were talking about earthing and rewilding, which is absolutely phenomenal. You know, the fact that we need to come back to the, not just like our own essence, 
in a spiritual sense, but our own primal being, that like sensory being that is almost like animalistic and understand that we are nature uh, to revive the senses. So he was, for instance, talking about the fact that the kids today cannot even read maps anymore because they have everything on the iPhone. So for them, world literally is completely decontextualized. Mm. And they don't understand the physical landscape, the terrain, the like how to navigate themselves in a space, you know, the, the smells and touch, and they're losing that sensory being, you know. So we need to like revive that. So this is what we just talked about uh, recently. What we are doing, what we uh, what we are working on now for the rest of this year is um, next episode is next month with with Tim Stock, who is my dear friend, and he's a um, He's a um, managing partner of Scenario DNA um, in New York, which is um, cultural mapping and strategic intelligence consultancy. So he will talk about, you know, newly emerging trends um, around the world in, in terms of COVID and how they, you know, re rewire um, the future of luxury consumption and spending. Mm. And then we are preparing like other things around spirituality and the art of home and the, the history and sociology of luxury. So we really want to have these really meaty, different kind of conversations around the very interesting aspects of luxury that are not being talked about to essentially create like a new reservoir of knowledge, basically, to, to evolve the conversations forward. Well, this has been, uh, I, I will use your term, this has been a meaty conversation, I think. <laughs> 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 and a primer really only into the whole world of luxury. We're going to definitely have to have you come back and, and sort of take apart, you know, again, each one of these component pieces, because I think there's so much in here about reconsidering our perceptions around what luxury is about and the whole idea of relevance and meaning in an emerging, you know, consumer culture uh, and, and how that will go. I, I would also in a future episode love to dig into the socio-cultural specificity of luxury this idea that within different cultures luxury may mean different things um, mm. based on the way people interact the built on their own cultures um, martina olbertova is the founder and ceo of meaning.global and has been a fascinating conversation where can people go and find uh the luxury renaissance show well we have our own youtube channel where we upload and store all the episodes so is literally just go to YouTube and type in the Luxury Renaissance Show. And we also have a page on LinkedIn where uh, we are posting and announcing all of the different episodes and sharing content. So, so far, it's very much like a beta program. We'll obviously, we'll have a full-blown website and everything. But it's, yeah, we've literally been just doing it for two and a half months. So have patience. But it's all on YouTube so far. That's terrific. And if people are interested in finding the luxury report, they can go to meaning.global. Yes, uh, meaning.global, and they will find it there. Okay, terrific. Martina, it's been fabulous. Um, my head is spinning, and I, I knew this would be. I, <laughs> I knew it in a, good, in a good way. No, no, no. It's a, it's a great way. I'm, I'm glad we did it. I think this is, uh, you have begun to shift my own perceptions on what nice. I believe luxury is about. And, uh, I think I've really begun to shift in my own mind. Um, how I how I now craft this idea, but one thing that hasn't shifted is that at the core, we're we're talking about uh, engaging people in things that are meaningful for them, and that um, it ultimately is about us and our relationship to brands, not the stuff, 
Um, I, I won't buy a fifty thousand dollar bag. I, I might, I might go still to the you know Bloomingdale five dollar bag. But, but I think this whole this discussion has been fabulous. I think it's been great to talk about what luxury means in the context of a consumer culture. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for asking me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to. Thanks for listening to this episode of Next Level Experience Design. And please remember to subscribe and share with all your friends wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out notes and links and other information like transcripts on the Next Level Experience Design webpage at simplecast.com. Also, follow me on social at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all of the information about upcoming shows and information on our guests who every day are taking it to the next level.